The first time Marshall Kiss went to the moon, he was nine years old, and the trip was accidental. A captive balloon broke loose at the county fair, and away it went, with Marshall in it. It never came down till 12 hours later. Where have you been? Marshall's pa asked. Up to the moon, Marshall answered. You don't say, pa said with his mouth slightly open and hanging, and off he went to tell the neighbors. Marshall's ma, being of a more practical turn of mind, just put a heaping bowl of good hot cereal on the table in front of Marshall. You must be good and hungry after a trip like that. You better have some supper before you go to bed. You've got a little time. We've got a little podcast. It's Short Story Short Podcast. I'm Chris, today here with... Christy Baxter. And Christy, I understand we both read the same short story this week. What a coincidence. It's amazing. It's so amazing. Great minds, I guess. So yes, we mm-hmm. both read The Man Who Went to the Moon Twice by Howard Rodman. And this is the first story we're doing that came from probably the most influential anthology in science fiction history called Dangerous Visions, edited by the diminutive Harlan Ellison. Um, and it was a series of purposefully provocative stories. And this is often cited as the least provocative story hmm. written by a guy who wasn't a science fiction author. He actually is best known for writing uh, television uh, screenplays. And to me, this is actually provocative in a very different way. It is the story of how as we age, our lies become less and less effective. And that to me is terrifying as a confirmed liar. Uh, (laughs) But I think one of the things that Rodman does here is he presents this fanciful idea at the beginning that then at the end is ignored because it's not fanciful enough anymore. Yeah. I found it a really interesting take on that idea. I, I, the whole time I was reading it, I wasn't entirely sure where it was going or how it was going to end. And I love that because I like being surprised. And so it definitely took me by surprise uh, at the very end uh, with that little bit about the Mars rocket. That was the day the Mars rocket went on a regular three-a-day schedule. And so it, it kind of felt like it felt like a little jolt at the end, but I found it mostly like, even with that little jolt, I found it mostly sad. Mm, That is an excellent point. I think that there is a pervasive, I think it's sort of two sides. I think one, there is this sort of attempt at a nostalgia in it that, you know, this farm kid, uh, you know, there's the hot air balloon, which is harkening back to Jules Verne. Uh, there's this whole sort of, you know, wholesome kid who goes out and con Sarna, he tolls a good yarn. Uh, and then it moves forward and there is that sadness. The guy sort of has a life and is, you know, has kids are all grown and gone and he's now left with nothing, uh, which is sad. It is sad. And the thing about it is, 
you talk about lies becoming more ineffective as we get older, but the paradox is that this story is so honest in its sadness. It's not shying away from the hard truths of aging and of how society views people when they're older. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's probably part of what makes it a little bit harder to take, admittedly, uh, as someone who's not really happy about growing older Um, but uh, you have to admire it for its honesty and so I love that it's you said you know it's about lies not uh, not working anymore and yet it's it's a fully honest story Mm -hmm. exactly and one thing I love is it plays with the trope of being that heartfelt story of a farm boy um, that great line about uh, the horse stuck his head in and then uh, and then the duck went under the thing and then when they leave, you know, went back to cropping the grass and the chicken left an egg underneath the stove. Yeah. I mean, there is a, a folksiness to it that I think really works, especially in the setting that it's in because Dangerous Vision was full of, you know, stories of planets where men married their sisters. Uh, there was, you know, uh, a terribly cliche uh, cross-dressing story. Um, but this idea that you can be situationally provocative, and I think that's what this is doing. This is, in a way, this is actually talking about the entire path of science fiction, that this idea that what was childish visions of the you know 19th century, early 20th century, have now given way to these sort of almost dour tales, uh, largely because we have progressed so far in our technological advance. Uh, you know, if you just look at the idea of from 1939, when uh, really I think science fiction was at its perfection phase, uh, up through 1967, when this would have been written, you have the advent of the computer, you have the advent of the jet, you have, you know, World War II, uh, which was apparently a big deal. Uh, <laughs> I have all this stuff happening, and it really had the effect of changing what you could do in sci-fi. And I think this story is a really good reflection of that change because it does model itself very much on it in that in the first half, you have this earnest tale being told by a child and everybody just believing it and going along with it. And, and it's that earnestness that is the point because, you know, when these late, 19th century early 20th century stories were being told they were certainly in earnest people back you know certainly believed that there or at least thought there was a possibility that the world would turn out as uh, many of them wrote it in their stories and depicted it at like world's fairs and stuff like that and so I find that it really is successful in mimicking that on a on a more personal level because then you also have the older man who no one believes. So the story that we used to look, you know, like humans used to look at and be like, yeah, maybe the future could be that way. As it ages, people look at it and they scoff, they laugh, they mock it. In a way, this actually reminds me of a quote that I love quoting about myself, um, which was, uh, in our own minds, we are all science fiction writers. And the longer we live, the less science fictional we're writing. And that is really, uh, I actually coined that phrase uh, in one of my zines before I had ever read this story. 
wow. so right there right there yeah. <laughs> pat in the back yeah, uh, yeah. I've always, that's always been something that fascinated me and also scared me about science fiction, or at least about the idea of writing it, was getting it wrong. You know, the idea that you try to predict what would happen in the future. And I'd sit there reading science fiction, be like, how can they even come up with this stuff? And then 20, 30 years later, some of it came true. Some of it looks ridiculous, but, you know, and we've talked about that in some previous episodes when we've touched upon science fiction stories and the concepts that they invent. But yeah, it's definitely something that I think makes it as a genre harder to approach, but also very admirable because it is trying to do the impossible and that's figure out where the hell we're going as humans technologically. Correct. I always have to get at least one correct per episode. I enjoy That's, it. It's a rule. Um, I think one other great thing about this story is that it is, I think it really shows that it's written by a person who's more well-known for writing screenplays. I think there is a definite uh, presentational aspect to it that really feels fresh uh, compared to a lot of, particularly at that point, a lot of the stodgy fiction you were reading in science fiction. It doesn't feel like Bradbury. It feels more loose, I guess, but at the same time, more constrained. And I think he manages to achieve that through the characters and, this, and the, the actual setting because it's a very folksy tale, you know, mm -hmm. it, which is interesting from a science fiction standpoint. You don't too often get, you know, farms and roofs <laughs> unless they're on another planet you know unless they're on Tatooine you know so it's it's definitely interesting from that standpoint I, I think that was part of the way that he achieved it was through that simplicity of speech and mm -hmm. reactions that the people have in the story and comparing that to another story that we have talked about uh where are you going where have you been the the way the characters speak are actually I think here less defining of their character as compared to of the setting and I think in what uh, uh, Oates was doing she was giving you the characters and you could contrast their speech from one another here I think he is specifically using the characters speech patterns to make the setting more concrete. And I think that's really, really well done. I really like that about this one. Yeah, I, I do enjoy that. I also think uh, there's there's that touch of quirk to it that is fun and, and also helps to kind of ground it and relieve some of the, some of the <laughs> existential pain. Uh, I particularly like Mustache, uh, the, the, the character who's a, a guy working for the newspaper in order to become an undertaker uh, to pay for that education. And he's just called the mustache or the undertaker. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think you have little, I think that's a, it's really memorable. And I think that's important for, for a short story to, to try and get, you know, some, some memorable bits in there. It really grounds the scene and makes it feel more real and more human. Yes. So, yeah, I really like this story. It's one of those that just, you know, it sticks with me, uh, possibly because of the existential dread, because I am nothing but existential dread. Same. It's it's makes up my entire being. Oh, well, that's good to hear. <laughs> all right. Well, got anything else? I think that's actually all I have. Well, in that case, Christy, what are we reading? 
next week. Next week, we are reading Voices by Alice Monroe. Ooh, a Nobel Prize winner. <laughs> Ooh, fancy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well then, this has been Short Story. Short Podcast. <laughs>